Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, August 17th, and I'm the host of this show, Emily Flippin. Today, I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma as we talk about a really particularly delicious IPO. That's Dole, D-O-L-E. Asit, thank you for joining. Emily, thanks for having me. For our English listeners today, we're not going to be talking about being on the Dole. This is a, a newly publicly traded company, right? It is. And it's one that completely went under my radar until you mentioned it to me as a potential story for industry focus. I'm very familiar with Dole, the brand name, just from their produce. I think in particular, what stands out to me is the the pineapples. (laughs) Uh, That's what I associate with Dole, but they make a lot of things as it turns out. I grew up with uh, Dole, those pineapple rings. And I think they have also the, the chunks that you can buy in the can. And even Today, I will admit to once in a while grabbing some dull pineapples in a can from the grocery store and throwing those on a pizza with some other toppings. But this business is about much more than that, isn't it? Oh, you're also a pineapple and pizza person, I see. Yes, absolutely. Are you? I am. It's a superior way to eat pizza, but you know, I know that's a controversial opinion. It, it is superior. And for those of you who disagree, come at us in the Q&A. <laughs> Well, besides being a global leader when it comes to their fresh fruit, they also sell a lot of vegetables, um, things like salad mixes, grapes, berries, even getting into the avocado business. So they're a pretty well diversified fruit and vegetable company here. And kind of an interesting way that this company has reached public markets. I think a lot of people may be scratching their heads and wondering, well, why now? Um, They're actually not going alone, are they? They're they're partnering. They're uh, kind of merging, I'll say, with a second fruit and produce business. Yeah, they they were partially acquired by a company called Total Produce in 2018. I should say Total Produce bought a 45% stake in the Dole Food Company. And as these two decided to go public, they sort of merged all their shares together. So Dole actually bought out the rest of Total Produce. And for those of you who why would you? But if you happen to spend a lot of a lot of time in this segment of the market, you may know that Dole used to be public and was taken private by a major shareholder. So there's a lot of story behind this. But the bottom line is that we now have this diversified company, both fresh fruits and vegetables that's come to market. And they're smartly keeping the Dole name as opposed to the Total Produce name, even though Total Produce has a very long track record of its own. Uh, because Dole has some of the highest unaided brand awareness I think I've seen in a long time. And their prospectus, their unaided brand awareness. So when they just ask someone, hey, name us a fruit company, um, 73% of people were able to name Dole. And their second highest competitor only had, uh, I had, I think they're 42% higher than their second competitor. So really far ahead of the competition here with Dole, which explains why that combined entity is, is sticking with that Dole name. Yeah, tremendous brand strength. I did this little exercise reading prospectus myself. I tried to name off the top of my head just a few other companies, and it took me a few seconds. Dole is that, and maybe I think the Chiquita Banana Company came to my mind, which is a competitor on the banana side. But after that, I I had a few seconds to try to come up with some other prominent brand names. 
And Dole is also, and I should say Dole and Total Produce, the combined entity, uh, is a vertically integrated producer. So when you think about Dole, we might just think that they're slapping their stickers or their labels on the produce or vegetables that they sell, but they're actually in the process of owning the entire chain. So from cultivation to manufacturing to distribution, Dole does it all. Uh, but because that is such a labor-intensive process, they really only sell, they have some Asian business, but they really only sell into North America and Europe for the time being. That's by and far the majority of their revenue. Yeah, it's a con- concentrated business model geographically. This has a little bit to do with the roots of the company, which go back to the beginning of the 20th century, um, when a guy named James Dole bought a plantation on the Hawaiian island of Oahu and found it much easier to supply to the mainland than to send pineapples to far-flung places. So they've sort of followed that business model. In this advantaged model that they have that you talk about, Emily, owning that supply chain, the thing that really stands out to me isn't necessarily the acreage. They own a ton of acreage across the globe, something like 109,000 acres, and they've got lots of relationships with different growers. And yes, they've got 250 different facilities among packing houses and distribution centers, but I like that they owned a fleet of cold supply self-sustaining container ships. So they can pack thousands of containers week in and week out, and they control that aspect. Shipping is one of the really hardest parts of the supply chain in produce because it's time sensitive. So if you can control that, you can control your promises to grocery distribution centers, you can control your costs, you can reroute produce as needed. So I think that's a big advantage. Um, It's not a super advantage. You're going to walk us through some of the financials and we'll see that this is a, a decent model, but it is in relation to its competitors, I think a huge advantage they have relationships um, with growers in South America, Africa, and New Zealand. So if, if you think about that footprint, just being able to, to send that supply to the US and to Europe is an efficiency they, they enjoy. For frequent industry-focused listeners, I did a Wildcard Wednesday episode a few weeks back with Clay Bruning and another analyst at The Fool, and we talked about app harvest. And uh, It was pre-app harvest earnings report. They had a really it's like interesting quarter, but I, I had a lot of concerns just about the produce industry in general. And I found myself uh, nitpicking about a lot of things that I would say are outside of App Harvest's control. And I think I can make very similar nitpicks with a business like Dole having a completely different business model, but facing the same pressures um, without getting too much into that, which I'm sure we will at the end of the show. I do want to say I Digging into this perspective, I mean, I was just so interested. The fresh fruits and vegetables category is just so unique. Um, There's clearly a seasonal aspect to it. You might be aware of that, right? Growing seasons, um, they sell whatever they can get in season, whatever's freshest. But there's actually like impacts from even produce that is not seasonal. So for instance, bananas, which make up around 25% of Dole's total revenue, are actually more expensive during the winter. I didn't know this. because they have to compete with other fruits during the summer because those fruits in the summer are in season. And so when consumers go into the grocery store, there's actually a trade-off that they experience. They go in, they want to get a certain amount of fruit for the week or the month or whenever they're shopping. And they either get bananas or they get berries. They don't get both necessarily. And the same thing happens with vegetables. So it's, it's just interesting 
how consumers see these these totally different products in the same category as substitutes for one another. Yeah, Emily, you know, when I read your notes before this show, I realized that I was learning about myself because I, I'm a fruit <laughs> buyer. I buy fruit frequently. I wouldn't call myself a fruitarian. I eat a lot of bad stuff as well. But I've experienced these patterns in the store and never really understood what was going on, despite being someone who professes to spend a lot of time in the consumer goods sector. I I never realized, like, why are these bananas so expensive? (laughs) Because there's there's nothing else that's fresh in the market. So thank Mm -hmm. you for that. It was illuminating on my side. I I want to point out, too, that fruits and vegetables, so fascinating because they're getting a lift from younger consumers, younger consumers like not only that fruits and vegetables have health benefits over animal-based meat, but they've also got a smaller carbon footprint that's associated with cultivating them and distributing them. And Dole is keen to this. They picked up on both points in their prospectus. They noted that the Dole brand is one of the 10 fastest growing brand names among millennials. This is as of 2019. So right up there with Crocs, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they also shared a graph in their prospectus, which visually shows you on a bar chart, the relative gas carbon emissions that are associated with very common foods from fish to milk, to olive oil, sugar, eggs, coffee, chocolate, all the way down to lamb and beef. And their portfolio of fresh fruits and vegetables just has a fraction of the emissions in harvesting and transport versus all the other types of foods I just named. So there is some halo effect associated with what they are selling. But we have to remember, this is not something that they are doing because it's good for the environment. This is a business model, again, that started in 1901. <laughs> so, but good for them, good on them to promote the benefits since that's coming into vogue. And, and I actually, as someone who thinks about these issues too, uh, being a little less flip here, I, I applaud them for that with, with some sincerity as well. <laughs> It does speak to the market opportunity, certainly. I think fresher options, in particular healthier options, have been gaining some steam. Um, I know that produce has become a key growth driver for grocers. Uh, 74% of Americans buy fresh food at least once a week. So when you think about that experience when you walk into a grocery store, that outer loop that people tend to walk, that's where the fresh produce is because people go there immediately. You walk into your grocery store, fresh produce is typically right there when you walk in. So it's certainly an important area for grocers to continue to stock. Uh, Another thing I thought was interesting that they laid out in the prospectus was the historical growth rate of fresh fruit and vegetables versus what they expect over, say, the next five or six years. Historically growing around 2%, they're expecting that to accelerate for the next six years at 2.7%. And I know that might not sound like a really large acceleration, but to your point, this is a business, an industry that has been around for hundreds of years typically grows very sustainably, but at a very low rate. You're, you're talking, you know, inflation level growth rates, but take away the years where inflation is like 14%, then you have produce. And a little acceleration there is never a bad thing. Agree. And a lot of the consumer goods sector is like this. A lot of consumer staple companies grow at a rate that just exceeds inflation. And historically, that's treated investors pretty well. It's It's been very decent for, let's say, income investors over the past 10 to 15 years. The question becomes, so in the near term, if inflation does indeed spike, could this push some of the valuations of, of companies like Dole into the doghouse? I don't know. But Emily, you mentioned something very interesting about the foods that are pushing that two-year compound and annual growth rate expansion. 
Yeah, so so management breaks down that that growth is going to be led by berries, avocado, organic produce, and prepackaged salads, each growing at 8%, 7%, 11%, and 8% over the past two years, respectively. And those were a lot of numbers, but as you can see, 7 or 8%, much greater than the historical 2% of the category. So as different fruits and vegetables come into vogue, avocado is probably the most clear example of this over the past 5 to 10 years. As they come into vogue, sales increase. Yes. And I just wanted to point out something before investors get too excited about this from some personal experience. So I'm an investor in a company called Calavo Growers, wonderful little company that specializes in avocado growing and distribution, uh, both in the US and back and forth from from Mexico and other areas, because the the avocado is just exploding in popularity around the globe. It's got a lot of health benefits, just a really beneficial type of food and and tasty as well. So I invest in the sector because I'm trying to learn about it. I have an investment in this and a company called Limonera. What I wanted to point out about these faster growth fruits and sort of exotic citruses. Well, let's Let's be honest, Limonera specializes in lemons, which isn't really an exotic fruit, but they've got some in their portfolio. These are higher risk fruits uh, in terms of their variability of harvesting, especially the avocado. It's a one-year on, one-year off harvest pattern. So you get a bumper crop one year, very little the next year, subject to drought, climate change, et cetera. And so if you are with me, those fellow Clavo grower owners, you probably love the company also, but you know those results can be uneven and so can the stock performance. So just want to put in a little note of caution. We'll talk about this more in the risks, as Emily said, uh, associated with a company that's in the agricultural business in a time of unrelenting climate change. And it results in financial performance that I think everybody would expect when they think about a produce maker. Um, This is steady but low net income margins. We're talking around 1% of revenue falls to their bottom line in terms of earnings. Year-over-year growth in the single digits, uh, small gross margins, small but again, very steady cash flow generation. Nothing is really going to surprise you, I think, if you look at Dole's financial statements in comparison to what you imagine them to be. Just you know, talking about a fruit producer. Um, But what is important to note is just how that revenue does break down. Around 70% of their pro forma sales, that is uh, the combined entity, dole and total produce, around 70% of those were fruit, 30% vegetables, um, again, selling mainly into North America and Europe. And I'll circle back on this, but I'll mention it here. Bananas are around 40% of all their fruit sales. So around 25% of total sales are just bananas. So definitely it's it's a risk. We'll get to it at the bottom here, but it's a risk to keep in mind. Yeah. The the good thing about having sourcing in multiple countries around the globe and having such a massive footprint is you can manage that supply. So these crops are variable and yes, they have not had to say, yes, we have no bananas. For those of you who are familiar with that very old school reference, um, I, I think that in terms of future cash flow, Dole has sort of proven out its ability to deliver to its buyers very steadily. So unlike those smaller ag companies that actually are listed in its prospectus as competitors, I think that multi-pronged supply approach on different continents is something they've mastered over the years. So that's that's a plus point, or them a little plus point there for cash flow predictability. 
Definitely. Although they have funded a decent amount of their growth and expansion through acquisitions, um, it's led to goodwill impairments over the past few years. So keep that in mind in terms of looking at whether or not they're spending shareholder capital wisely in terms of where they're acquiring it. And this is also a business that has a sizable amount of debt. They're going public and using all of the proceeds from the IPO to pay off things that are essentially debt, right? So like convertibles, those sorts of aspects. They expect their debt to be just over $1.3 billion after they pay it off. Um, so interest expense is a factor, but they've always managed to make their interest payments, to be clear. It's around 17% of operating income going to interest payments over the past year. So it's not terrible, just something to watch, especially when you add on top that they do have a defined benefit pension plan, which is something I haven't seen in a long time, but it's underfunded. Um, as an, a young you know, a millennial investor, I'd never really know how much risk to attribute to an underfunded pension plan, but I, I say it just so it's on people's radars. Well, you've got a great point there, Emily, for more grizzled investors who used to love to invest in nothing but, say, manufacturing. You all remember the constraint on cash flow that companies like Ford and GE regularly expressed in their annual reports as they started to see those liabilities increased and the time came to pay out employees. Defined benefit means you can't really mess around. You've got to supply the cash flows to the retirees when the, when the day arrives. So that's a really great point uh, to note. And you also picked up on something when we were discussing this, that is to me a really great reason to buy the company is that it's going to try to pay a quarterly dividend. Um, and this is based on total produces, I'm going to call it an algorithm because I'm feeling fancy today, but <laughs> 20% of net income, they pay out to investors as, as a dividend. So if you are an income investor, this could be a company to put on your radar that is not, it's never going to be a high-flying consumer goods stock. However, it could be a nice anchor type stock in uh, an investor's portfolio. I, and I, by anchor, I don't mean that you weight more of your portfolio towards this stock, but in terms of balancing out, maybe some risks of higher yielding stocks that you may own. That's a reason that to keep this on your radar screen. If you are a heavy growth investor, I can already say, since we don't have our regular hour, we're getting used to these half hour segments. To, I won't tease what I think any longer. I'm going to go ahead and say that, yeah, this is not for you. you know, if, if you are a growth investor, you can look elsewhere. But I think for income investors, this, this could be one to pay some attention to. I, I completely agree. And after this podcast, I'm actually going to send the business along to Ron Gross, who's both of our managers, but also helps Motley Fool run our total income portfolio. It's a relatively recent IPO. I'm not sure if he's looked at it, but a business like this, I think is perfect for a portfolio that's aimed at something like total return, right? Dividends included. Dole could be, and not to say they are a steady provider, this is a, a recent IPO, so they have no history of paying dividends. But if they maintain that record from total produce, it could be a pretty decent play. And again, this is an industry that doesn't go away, right? Fresh fruit and produce, it can change. And we'll talk about that when we get to risks. But the need for the type of, of fresh fruit and vegetables doesn't disappear. And that's kind of the nice aspect, I think, of this business when you're an income investor, because you always kind of face that risk when you get to businesses that are large enough to be paying out a dividend. So Emily, risks. We've got um, a number that we have both sort of um, alluded to since the beginning of this podcast. What's the biggest risk in your mind associated with buying Dole after its IPO? Oh, that's a great question. I 
I think it has two key risks. One would be the biggest risk if you're buying Dole for capital appreciation. One would be the biggest risk if you're buying Dole for dividend income. I think in terms of capital appreciation, I talked about this during that wildcard episode about App Harvest, but there are just questionable unit economics behind produce in general. It's a very, very low margin industry, and they're often impacted by things that are just far outside of their control. Things like weather can make a huge difference into whether or not a business that does sell produce has a good year, a good quarter, or a terrible year and a terrible quarter. Um, And weather's only getting more extreme and unpredictable due to global warming. So it just becomes this big question mark of, You can be executing really well as a business, but still have financial performance that is worse than expectations because of aspects that are outside of your control. And what makes it worse is that while you can diversify your business, to your point, they have operations across the world, scale doesn't tend to make a huge difference when it comes to the actual margins themselves. Uh, Just too much outside of my control if I was investing for capital appreciation here. Yeah, that's a really great risk to isolate. And I think you sold me on that. I'm going to piggyback on the one you mentioned earlier, which is the increasing importance of ag tech. I'm a big fan of this movement. Um, I own some app harvest, not because I think it's going to be the greatest investment, but it's a way for me to learn about the industry uh, in addition to my Clavo and Limonera uh, investments. So I I want to applaud Dole for not using the the term artificial intelligence in every other sentence to show that there are some really tech-savvy type of software-driven agricultural concern. On the other hand, I don't think I quite saw enough of investments into technology. Uh, Not that we expect them to become this big vertical agricultural farming concern uh, like Aerofarms, which is, I think they're still private, but is another well-known name in this space. They may be public by now. I, I believe they had a SPAC IPO on the table, not expecting them to become a big player because their footprint is rooted in traditional farming. But the, the risk for me is I didn't see enough about how they're investing in this space. And there is a long-term movement that ag tech will, will probably uh, provide over, I would say, like a seven to 10 year period, which is some uh, pricing power that they'll have. In other words, higher pricing will be associated with food that is sustainably farmed, that's free of pesticides, that's organic and isn't imported from another country. Uh, App Harvest, as you mentioned, is really interesting because they're based right here in close to both of us, Emily in in Appalachia, not that we live in Appalachia, but you in Virginia, me in North Carolina. So um, they're not putting fruit on container ships. They're using technology to grow um, food in a sustainable way here. So I I think that there's a bit of a risk there in their future profit margins if they don't invest enough. And that's, they might, we'll have to see now as they um, take their cadence as a public company and start giving quarterly conference calls, we can hear management's opinion about that. Definitely. I, I, that was the risk that I was going to outline when it comes to dividends. And it might not sound like a dividend risk, but I think if you're planning on the next 10 to 20 years of steady dividend payments, that aspect could be something that could increase competition, really decrease the cash and the potential dividends for this business. Just competing with vertical farmers, greenhouse growers that are producing locally, picking a produce and then you know getting it in front of consumers' faces in a matter of, of hours to days instead of weeks to months. So something to definitely consider. The last aspect I'll add here, which is 
I'm adding mostly just because I thought it was so interesting, is something called Tropical Race 4. And I've, I've figured out over the past few days that I'm very ignorant about bananas. But apparently back in the 1950s, the Gros Mikkel banana was the banana that everybody ate. And then the Tropical Race 1, which was a d- disease as a result of monoculture, just completely eradica- eradicated this banana. It was uh, really sensitive to this disease, which led to the banana that we have today, um, whose name is escaping me. But there is another disease um, that is coming out and a Cavendish banana, that's what it is, that is hurting the Cavendish variety of bananas, which is the variety that Dole and every other producer sells right now. And they're probably going to have to spend a decent amount of money to, to restock their banana varieties to get types that have become resistant to this disease. And that's going to cost, they expect, tens of millions of dollars over the next couple of years. Something that I thought was interesting and also to keep in mind, considering they are, again, 25% of pro-former revenue. Yeah, Emily, when you pointed that out to me and asked if I'd ever heard of it, I thought you were referring to the fourth season of some reality TV show, Tropical (laughs) Race Season 4. (laughs) Tropical Race 4. I find this fascinating. And I thought it was interesting that management is looking years ahead. They are experts in this. They've got ways that they can switch varieties over a multi-year period, but it is a risk to pay attention to. And now I wonder what life would have been like. It's bubbling up in memory that that was a pretty delicious variety of banana. And I've I've heard this somewhere. I just didn't know um, much about it. So what a fascinating risk to end our uh, episode on. I will say, if you go to places um, like Malaysia, for instance, there are still local local growers that will grow this type of banana. So it is entirely possible to get it, especially relatively cheaply in other areas of the world. Um, in the US, I think you can only get it if you have a say, a, a local farmer, friend, or family member who is growing this you know, tropically in their backyard. So uh, if you have the opportunity to give it a try in a different country, hey, maybe give it a try. We'll see if it lives up to the hype. Yeah, I don't need much of an excuse to travel. So I just added Malaysia to my bucket list, Emily. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Asit, thank you so much for joining for today's episode. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Emily listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hi, feel free to shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. Frost Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Fool on!